Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 24. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, with shame, you will have to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may, may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The word of the Lord. Do any of you ever suffer from FOMO? <laughs> if you're over 30, let me explain. <laughs> FOMO, F-O-M-O, -O, means fear of missing out. Uh, that's when perhaps you're on your social feed and you see pictures of your friends enjoying themselves and you realize, oh no, I wasn't there. I missed out. You know, even worse than FOMO is something called FOBLO. Not F-O-M-O, -O, but F-O-B-L. 
F-E-A-R-T-H-E-L-O, not fear of missing out, but fear of being left out. That's when you see pictures of your friends together enjoying themselves, and you realize with a sudden shock of horror that you weren't even invited. That is one of the worst experiences anyone can go through. Um, you know, we all want to be welcomed. We all want to be invited. We all want to be um, wanted and welcomed in. Um, and, but one of the things that makes this even worse is not just being left out, but being left out for everyone to see, publicly being left out. So it's kind of like that ancient playground dilemma of picking teams. Do you ever have to go through that when you were a kid? Uh, maybe you want to play a game or a sport. And so two captains tell all of the other kids to line up, and then they take turns picking people. That's awful to go through something like that. You're standing there, and it's like you're being ranked. Well, you're number one, you're number two, you're number five. That's, that's horrible. Do you remember what that feels like? You're standing there thinking, what if I get picked last? What if I don't get picked at all? Everyone will see. It's, it's not just being left out, but publicly left out, publicly excluded, publicly shamed, publicly rejected. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where that was no longer a part of the world, but instead we could live in a world of welcome? You know, we talk a lot about inclusion in our culture. Tim gave some wonderful teaching for us last week on this. But even in our modern inclusive culture, um, there's always people that are being left out, people that are being excluded and shamed and rejected. Now, in our culture, we would say, well, we need to try harder to make sure that, that people are being included, but we also need to make sure that the ones that are doing the excluding, they should be excluded. They should be rejected. You see, there's always somebody that's going to be excluded, and we're always going to come up with some moral justification for it. So the question is not, do I want to live in a world where I am welcomed? That's easy. We all want that. The real question that Jesus is pressing on us here is, do you want to live in a world that, that welcomes those whom you would exclude? Jesus is saying, because you can't have the first world unless you also want the second one. In other words, you will never live in a world in which you are fully welcomed unless you also want a world that welcomes those you would exclude. We are in a series this uh, season in which we're listening to Jesus himself tell us what it means to follow him. In this passage, Jesus is teaching us how to get a world of welcome, but he's got some surprises for us. So he's going to show us three things this morning. Uh, Jesus shows us first how we create a world of welcome, second, why we don't do it, and thirdly, the surprising way it happens, okay? How to create a world of welcome, why we don't do it, and the surprising way that it actually happens, okay? First, how to create a world of welcome. Um, if we start with the second paragraph, uh, Jesus is at a banquet, and this would have been a very lavish meal. It would have been a feast, and to be invited to a meal like this actually would have been quite an honor in that society. Um, but here's the thing we got to know. Ancient world was, it was a very hierarchical world. Now, you know, we have class division in our society. It was nothing compared to the ancient world. Um, now, here's the way things worked in the ancient world. Uh, the way things got done back then was by means of something we've actually all become very familiar with recently, quid pro quo. That means that if you were a poor person and you needed something, then you would try to make friends with a rich person. But the only way you could do that was if you had something to offer them in return. 
Likewise, if you were rich, um, very often rich people would befriend people in lower social classes, but they only did it if, if those people also had something to offer them. That means this was a society in which everyone was constantly networking. You, you only talked to people or befriended people or did something for people if they had something that they could do for you in return. Does that sound familiar? We still live in a world in which we tend to look at all of our relationships in an incredibly transactional way. So even if we're not trying to think like this, whenever you meet someone, it's inevitable. We'll start thinking, what can this person do for me? Or what can I do for them in order to get them to do something for me? In this passage, Jesus is turning that mindset on its head by, by completely upending this whole networking mentality. Because in the ancient world, the way all of this networking and all of this quid pro quo stuff happened was by means of hospitality. That means feasts, meals, banquets. So you notice how Jesus turns it on its head in verse 12. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, or your relatives. Now, we have to pause there for just a moment. When Jesus says, don't invite your friends, in the ancient world, this was a very common way of speaking that used hyperbole to make a point. So in other words, Jesus is not literally saying, never invite your friends over. You can actually see the point of what he's saying in the very next verse. He says um, that if you do invite them, you, they may invite you back and then you will be repaid. In other words, Jesus is saying we need to forsake that networking quid pro quo mentality of only doing things for people um, because we think they might do something back uh, for us in return. Instead, Jesus says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed even though they cannot repay you. Jesus is saying that we should extend radical welcome to people who can do nothing for us in return. They can't enhance your social status. They can't add to your portfolio. They can't open doors for you. In fact, associating with um, them might actually limit your access to some of those things. Jesus is saying, do it anyway. Welcome them anyway. Invite them in. Open up your life and your home and your resources to people. Get close to them. Now, what does that look like? Normally, I would give most of the application at the end of a sermon. Uh, today, I'm going to give you most of the application on the front end. And the first thing is this. In order to create a world of welcome first, we have to learn to see people, just to see them. Because in our world, we know there are all kinds of people that are unseen. Now, in Jesus's world, it would have been the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, also moral outcasts. You know that in our world, it's pretty much the same way. We should especially include um, houseless people. Have you ever driven up to an intersection and you see somebody standing asking for help and all of a sudden you have something really important to look at on your smartphone? We don't want to make eye contact. Jesus is saying, first, you have to see people. You, you know, if you read through the Gospels with an eye for this, you'll notice how many times it says Jesus saw someone. He saw someone. He saw someone. The reason Jesus was able to extend radical welcome to people was because he was always on the lookout for them. So first, we just have to see people. But secondly, we have to change the frame for how we see people. That means that if you see a poor person or a disabled person or... Um, 
maybe a houseless person, or maybe someone of a different political party or a different ethnicity? Is that all you see? Or do you see them as God sees them, someone who bears his image? We frequently, again, we don't like to do this, but we all have a tendency to divide the world into the VIPs, and then there's everyone else. We have to learn to see people, change the frame for how we see people, to see every single person in the world as a VIP, because that's how God sees them. So for instance, um, Kehinde Wiley is a Nigerian-American artist. He's one of the greatest living artists in the world today. Uh, You may have seen the portrait, very famous portrait of Barack Obama that he did. It's in the National Portrait Gallery Gallery in DC. One of the things Kehinde Wiley is most famous for is taking uh, portrait style from, say, 200 or 300 years ago. These would be portraits in which you see lords and ladies and aristocrats and social elites and rich people. And they're dressed in lavish clothing and they're put in very luxurious settings and they're always white people. Kahinde Wiley takes that portrait style and he puts people of color in those settings. He's changing the frame for how we see people. So one of his most famous paintings is called Napoleon Crossing the Alps. In the original painting, it was a a picture of Napoleon, the great general, uh, dressed up in all of his military finery, sitting atop a horse that's reared up on its hind legs. It's a painting that just speaks of power and dignity and authority and nobility. In Kehinde Wiley's version of that painting, it's an urban black man. He's got cargo pants and a bandana on his head. He's got tats on his arms, and he's wearing Timberland boots. Kehinde Wiley is changing the frame for how we see people of color. So in his paintings, he's giving them a dignity and a nobility and an honor and a glory that for hundreds of years have been denied to them by a majority culture that prefers instead to see people as less than or even less than human. He's changing the frame for how we see people. So first, you just have to see people, notice them, be on the lookout for them. Second, you have to change the frame for how we see them. But thirdly, What are ways, once we've seen them and changed the frame, that we can actually welcome people into our lives and into our space? People who may have nothing that they can do for you in return. Well, we could multiply examples, but let me just offer a few, and you can take it from there. First, right just here at church, um, instead of always just sitting with your friends, be on the lookout for people who might be new, and go over and greet them. Maybe even invite them to sit with you and your friends. Or after church, if you're standing in a circle talking to your friends and you see somebody who's standing on the outside of that circle, just open the circle. Invite them in. Invite them to become a part of your circle. Or maybe outside of your church, how do you use your home? Is your home a place where you would welcome people that nobody else would welcome? You know, meals today are still one of the most powerful and intimate ways of creating friendships and relationships and places of welcome. Think about the kinds of things that happen in a kitchen or around a dining room table, the kind of relationships and bonding that form there. Um, Are you willing and able to invite people into those spaces that may have access nowhere else? Or if your home is too small or really not appropriate for something like that, will you take people out and invite them to be your guest at a meal? Um, Or lastly, maybe throughout the week, do you ever get in a hurry? I get in a hurry. But we should be open to interruptions into our precious schedule, uh, especially interruptions from people. 
You never know when it might be a divine appointment from God to care for someone, or even better than that, to dignify somebody by allowing them to care for you. You see how this works? We could, as I say, multiply examples, but in order to create a world of welcome, first, you have to see people. Second, you have to change the frame for how you see them. And thirdly, there are endless ways that we can welcome people, invite people into our space, people who may have nothing they can do for us in return. But all of that leads us to our second point. We've just been talking about how you create a world of welcome, but the second thing Jesus is showing us here is why we don't do it, because we've got a big problem. So if we look at um, verse 13, Jesus says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I'm going to come back to this idea of being repaid in just a little bit. But for now, what does Jesus mean when he's talking about the resurrection of the righteous? Well, we get a hint in the very next verse. There's a guy sitting at the table who says, blessed is the one who eats the feast in the kingdom of God. He knows what Jesus is talking about. And he says, oh, that's the feast in the kingdom of God. He knows that Jesus is talking about the main storyline of the whole Bible. The main storyline of the Bible is all about a God um, and his vision to renew a world that's falling apart because of sin. That means that when we think about heaven, it's really more accurate to think about the new heavens and the new earth, because that's the way the Bible talks about it. In other words, God's vision and the main storyline of the Bible is not to carry us away from earth to some disembodied heaven. God's vision is to renew the whole earth by uniting it with heaven. And the way he does that is by means of the Messiah, or Moshiach in Hebrew, which means anointed one. The Messiah is the, is the means, the person, the being by whom God is going to renew all of creation so that's why this guy gets so excited when he hears Jesus talking about the resurrection of the righteous. He knows what Jesus is talking about. He's excited about it. In fact, everybody in those days was waiting for this, um, for this renewal of the world to come. And the inaugural event of that new world was a feast. It was known as the Messianic Banquet. You can read about it, for instance, in Isaiah 25, a great feast that was going to be the inaugural event for when the Messiah came to renew the whole world. This guy knows that's what Jesus is talking about, and he's excited about it. The problem is when he says this, blessed is the one who will eat the feast in the kingdom of God, the problem is he's thinking, well, I'm one of the righteous, and therefore I deserve to sit at that feast He's thinking, hey, Jesus is talking about me. I'm one of the righteous ones. I'm going to eat the meal in the kingdom of God. This is an example of the same attitude that Jesus is talking about in the first paragraph. So if you look at the beginning of the passage, in verse 7, it talks about how Jesus was there at this banquet. He shows up for a dinner party, and he notices how everybody there is looking for the best seat for themselves. Because in that, in that culture, that was a way of ranking yourself. So if you considered yourself a VIP, you know, a very important person, then it was natural that you were going to look to sit in an MIP, a most important place. Jesus, in verse 10, says, always pick the lowest place. And then he gives the spiritual principle for that in the very following verse. In verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled or brought low, but everyone who humbles themselves 
will be exalted. Jesus is talking about our desire to be desired, our desire to be welcomed, invited, valued, wanted, and there's nothing wrong with that desire. In fact, God hardwired that desire into us. The problem is that our desire to be desired is distorted. That means that we think we have to merit um, our own status and dignity and honor and nobility and glory for ourselves rather than having it bestowed upon us by God. That means that, that because of our own inner fears and insecurities, we're always seeking to exalt ourselves rather than humbly allowing ourselves to be exalted by God. Now, we see all kinds of manifestations of this in our world, don't we? I mean, obviously, there are the very blatant ways this happens. We all know people who are prideful. We all know people who think so highly of themselves. They're always bloviating about how amazing they are. But there are also a lot of really subtle ways that we can do this. So, for instance, even, even if you may be somebody who cares for the poor or welcomes people who are socially marginalized, or supports some very um, wonderful social causes, whatever it might be. Have you ever like, been doing a good thing, and you caught yourself being a good person, and you said to yourself, well, I am such a good person. I'm so impressive. I'm one of those humble, virtuous, inclusive types, not like those oppressive, bigoted types. I'm not like them. Blessed is the one who eats the feast in the kingdom of God, especially moi. Or, you know, we humble brag, or virtue signal on Facebook, or again, if you're over 30, I mean, Instagram, or if you're over 30 on Facebook, or, um, or we slip little hints into our conversations. You know, I was on my way down to the homeless shelter, and, you know, what are we doing? We're ranking ourselves. We're exalting ourselves. Jesus says, that's a trap, Everyone who exalts themselves will be brought low, but everyone who goes low will be exalted. Friends, one of the main reasons that we can't create a world of welcome is because even when we're welcoming the poor, even when we're doing good things, even when we're being good people, we are so fearful and so insecure, and as a result, so prideful and so self-righteous, that even when we're doing thing, good things, there's a huge part of us that we're really doing it for ourselves. We need to think of ourselves as good people. We need to think of ourselves as virtuous people. That means that even when we're being good, we're still exalting ourselves. We're not really able to create the world of welcome that we want to live in. So what has to happen to change that? Because unless our hearts are changed, the, the world that we live in will never be changed either. Well, that leads to our last point. We've talked about how to create a world of welcome and we've just seen why we don't do it. But lastly, Jesus shows us the surprising way it happens. Let's summarize everything we've heard from Jesus so far. Jesus is saying, don't seek the most important place. Always seek the lowest place. And when you give a feast, when you create welcome, don't invite people who can do something for you in return. Don't invite people who will repay you. Instead, invite people who can never repay you and if you do that, catch what he says at the very end, then you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Now, did you catch what he said at the end there? It sounds like he's contradicting himself. I mean, Jesus, he just went out of his way to say, don't invite people in order to be repaid. But then he turns around and he says, and if you do, God will repay you. 
What's going on? Because notice, even the guy who said, blessed is the one who eats the feast in the kingdom of God, even he thinks that's what Jesus is saying. He thinks that Jesus is talking about the traditional religious approach to life, which says, be a good person and God will reward you. That is not what Jesus is talking about. And you can see that by the way that Jesus responds to the guy. He says, basically, um, you still don't get it. All right, let me tell you a story. It's all about a rich man who's hosting a feast. In that culture, you would send out invitations, and then people would RSVP to the feast. And when you got all your RSVPs back, then you would know how much food to make. So if it was a small crowd, then you know, well, it's going to be a goat party. Uh, But if it was a big crowd, then you knew, well, I'm going to have to slaughter the fattened calf for this one. And then you prepared all of the food, all of the preparations. And then once all of the food was ready, then you would send out a second invitation. And you see that's exactly what's happening in verse 17. It says, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. And at that point, everybody who's already accepted the invitation, they begin to say, oh, I can't come. Please excuse me. Now, First of all, their excuses are obviously lies. But second, and more importantly, to, um, to refuse an invitation that you've already accepted is one of the most insulting things that you could have possibly done in that culture. It was a shame on our culture. This is what they were, it was a way of, of publicly excluding, publicly shaming, publicly rejecting the host of this feast. But this is where Jesus gives us a surprise that we would never see coming. Because at that point, the host still has this feast waiting to be enjoyed. So he he goes and he invites the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, social outcasts. In fact, the blind and the lame were people that they were excluded from worshiping at the temple. These are social outcasts. He invites them in, but even still, his house is not full. So he tells his servant, um, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel people to come in. Now those country lanes, those would have been like, this basically would have been people begging in alleys. In that culture, for that host to invite those people into his home like this would have been even more shameful than being turned down by the original guests. Because those guests, those village people in that town, they would have publicly mocked, ridiculed, rejected, and shamed that man for inviting such people into his house. In other words, Jesus is giving us a picture here of a host who is willing to suffer public exclusion, public rejection, in order to welcome outcasts into his house. But it's even more surprising than that. Because did you notice he told his servant, Compel them to come in. I don't know about you, but it kind of sounds like he's saying you got to drag people in against their will, right? Just dragging people in against their will. That's not what Jesus is saying. Again, we have to understand the culture here. In a shame honor culture like this, you never invited someone to a meal who didn't have the ability to repay you in some way. So for instance, if you were a beggar with nothing to offer, and somebody invited you to a meal, even though you're starving, you would have, social custom would demand that you refuse that invitation because you have nothing to offer in return. 
It would have been doubly shameful for the poor person. Not only is there the shame of having nothing to offer, there's the shame also of having to turn down an invitation to a meal, even though you're starving, simply because you have nothing to offer. And that is precisely where Jesus gets even more surprising for us because the host in this parable, he knows all about this situation. He knows what kind of culture this is. He knows they're going to have to turn down the invitation. That's why he says to his servant, compel them to come in. Compel does not mean dragging people against their will. It means convincing them the offer is real because it's an unbelievable offer. As unbelievable as it sounds, this host is saying, I do want you in my house. I do want you at my table. It's unbelievable because grace is unbelievable. We get an offer like that. If you're poor, you say, what, me? I have nothing to offer. The host says, that's right. Now, welcome. Are you beginning to see what Jesus is getting at here? You may think of yourself as a good person. Jesus is saying, unless you're able to embrace the reality that spiritually speaking before God, you have nothing to offer. That you cannot earn your way into his feast. You can only accept his invitation by grace. Are you willing, are you able to be poor before God to see that you have absolutely nothing to offer? And listen, I understand some of you may be concerned. Wait, doesn't this rob human beings of dignity? The answer is no. God's love, God's grace bestows a dignity upon you infinitely greater than anything you could ever merit for yourself. Being a V, you're not a VIP because of your goodness, but because of God's love. Friends, if that's true of you, that means that that when you turn around and you welcome others, when you give to others, you're not giving in order to get something back. Even from God, what you're doing is you're giving a morsel a crumb, a mere tidbit of the coming feast that you have even now begun to enjoy just in down payment form, in appetizer form, but that one day we will enjoy in full when the honorable Jesus Messiah comes to make all things new. Are you able to say that you're poor before God? Are you able to lay down your goodness, lay down your righteousness I mean, here's the real message that Jesus is giving to us. Unless we're able to embrace our common poverty, we'll never enjoy the coming feast. Unless we're able to embrace our common poverty, we will never enjoy the coming feast. Are you able to do that, to lay down your goodness, lay down your righteousness? In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard, he's one of the great spiritual masters of the 20th century, passed away a few years ago. Um, he, he gave a paraphrase of the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes answer the question, who's eligible to feast in the kingdom of God? Who's eligible to feast in the kingdom of God? I'm going to read you what Dallas Willard wrote. And as I do that, if you're comfortable, I would encourage you, close your eyes and, and let the images just kind of hit you without any other distraction. Here's how Dallas Willard puts it. Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, too little, too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. 
Then there are the seriously crushed ones, the flunkouts and dropouts and burned outs, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the, quote, rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, even the moral disasters, murderers and child molesters, the brutal and the bigoted, drug lords and pornographers, war criminals and sadists, terrorists, the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich. You can open your eyes. Can you find yourself on that list somewhere, anywhere on that list? If so, Jesus is saying, welcome to the feast. But if you believe that you deserve to sit at the feast, Jesus is saying, you'll never taste it. Unless we embrace our common poverty, we'll never enjoy the coming feast. The host in this parable was someone who was willing to suffer public exclusion, public rejection in order to welcome outcasts into his house. Don't you see Jesus is saying, I am the host. I am the one who offers the invitation, and I'm the one who suffers in order to welcome people into my house. But I am doing so not just at the cost of my reputation, but at the cost of my life. Do you want to know the offer is real? What would compel you to come in? Look at Jesus on the cross. Do you see him? And I mean, do you see him? Because the story is so old and so oft told that it's easy to, to see it but not really see it. Do you see Jesus on the cross? He was publicly rejected, publicly excluded. He, he took everything on that list I just read on his shoulders. He became all of those things. He was cosmically left out in order that he could welcome you into his house, bathe you in his love, and, and sit you, feast you at his table have you begun to taste it? Then offer that taste to others. And if not, do you want to taste it? The only way is to lay down your goodness, lay down your righteousness, and receive that offer, that unbelievable offer of unconditional grace that Jesus is offering to you. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are an unbelievable God because your grace is unbelievable. We praise you this morning for wanting us, for seeing us, for noticing us, for, for, ch for changing the frame, not just for how you see us, but how we see ourselves. We pray this morning that you would help us to see ourselves as you see us and to see others as you see them. Father, if we have begun to taste of your feast that you offer us in, in our own poverty, we pray that you would help us more and more to extend that welcome to others. We pray, Father, this morning, if, um, for those of us here who are just beginning to get a glimpse of what that offer really constitutes, we pray that you would help, um, help us to, to embrace your offer, Lord, to embrace the poverty, um, the reality of our situation, but to embrace the unbelievable offer of grace that you give to us through Jesus. For we pray it in his name, amen.